Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 to 14. But I'm going to read for us from verse 13 all the way to verse 27, just for the sake of context. So Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, but that you have revealed yourself both through creation, but also most especially through your divine word, your holy scriptures. You have made clear who you are. You have made clear what you have done for us in Jesus. And you have made clear for how you expect your children to live. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would illumine our minds, soften our hearts to receive your word this morning and to live according to it for the glory of Christ's name and for our good. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we're now looking at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been out of the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time uh, due to my vacation, and then also when I got back, we focused on a few other things. I was originally only going to uh, preach only one more sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, but as I was reading through it again this past week, I felt compelled to preach three sermons on the final section of the sermon, which uh, is what I just read to you this morning. 
It's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And really, it's Jesus' final exhortation in light of his previous teaching in the sermon. Now, for way of reminder, um, what is it that Jesus has been teaching? Well, we've seen that Jesus is unpacking for us this idea of whole person righteousness, whole person righteousness contrasted to that of the Pharisees who merely obeyed the law externally while their hearts were wicked. They looked good on the outside, but inwardly they were, as Jesus describes, whitewashed tombs. And this is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus does through chapters 5, 6, and 7 is articulate what this greater righteousness is, what, what this whole person righteousness is all about. And it's this whole person righteousness that is key to living a virtuous, flourishing life in both this life and the life to come. And so from, from chapters 5, verse 20 to 48... Jesus articulates this greater righteousness in relation to the law. So he he addresses um, murder, adultery, he addresses oaths, he addresses divorce, he addresses our enemies. So he's, he's addressing this greater righteousness in relation to the law. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 20, he articulates this greater righteousness in relation to piety or devotion to God, where he, he speaks of giving to the poor, uh, prayer, and also fasting. And then, in chapter 6, verse 22, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, he articulates this greater righteousness in relation to the goods of this world and the peoples of the world. And throughout these sections, what we see is Jesus' emphasis on not just external observance to God's commands, but an internal obedience. It's not simply good enough to not commit adultery. If your heart is consumed with lust, you've committed heart adultery. See, I think Socrates actually captures so powerfully what Jesus is referring to when he says this, Give me beauty in the inward soul. May the outward and the inward, may the outward and the inward man be at one. May the outward and the inward man be at one. That is what Jesus is unpacking for us in the Sermon on the Mount, that you and I, our hearts would be at one with our external obedience to God's commands. And so in light of all that he has said, he now concludes his sermon in chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. And here he summons his hearers to a decision, or really to a response. How will you respond to my teaching? And what he does is he provides three metaphors or images, but these images are all deeply interconnected. And in each metaphor, there are two options or two ways given. So, for, for example, in verses 13 to 14, you have the two gates and the two paths. 
Then in verses 15 to 23, you have the two prophets. And then in verses 24 to 27, Jesus ends off with two builders. Each image, each metaphor emphasizes something distinct, but they're also all related. There's a bond between them. Jonathan Pennington really helped me see this. So, so for example, in, in all the metaphors, there is the difference between external appearance and internal reality, which is really what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. So, for example, the wide gate and the wide way or the easy way is appealing because it appears easy and comfortable, but it leads to destruction. Right? So it appears a certain way, but it actually leads to destruction. Also, the false prophets are gifted and even have power to cast out demons and do mighty works, but they're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. They appear externally like servants of God, but they're actually wolves. And then you have the two builders who appear to have the same kind of home. But it's not until the storm that you discover they're not the same home. So all three metaphors capture the difference between external appearance and internal reality. They're also related to each other in that each image presents us with two ways. There are only two ways that one can go. And what Jesus does here is in fact... Uh, he, he does what most wisdom teachings do. So, so, for example, we saw this in the scripture reading this morning uh, that Peter read for us from Deuteronomy 15, uh, 30, verses 15 to 20. Moses places before them two ways, good and evil, life and death. You see this also in Psalm 1. Uh, the way of the righteous man is contrasted to the way of the wicked, Right? Blessed or flourishing is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then he describes what this man is like. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then he contrasts that to the wicked. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are only two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And this is what Jesus is doing here with these three images. He's placing before his hearers Two ways. And you must choose one of these ways. In fact, to not choose is to choose. The other way in which each image is related is with the two ways, but it's with the theme of doing the will of God as essential to entering the kingdom of God. So for example, one must enter the narrow gate and walk the hard road that leads to life. You can't avoid it. For it's this road that leads to life. There's no other road. And this road is the will of God. 
With the false prophets, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then the two builders, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does them, will be like a wise man. So all three images emphasize doing the will of God in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the last thing I want us to see in all three images before we dig into the first one is the urgency that Jesus speaks with in light of the future reality of the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling his hearers for a decisive response in light of what is coming. There is an eschatological urgency. The kingdom of God is coming and there's no time for you and I to fool around. There's no time for fence sitting with Jesus. The kingdom of God is over the horizon. You will be ready. Will you be ready when it comes in its fullness? That's the question. A decisive response is required. Will you enter the narrow gate or the wide gate? Will you walk the easy path or the hard path? Will you hear Jesus' words and do them like the wise man who built his house on the rock or like the foolish man who did not hear or who did hear but did not respond accordingly? So with all of this as context, let's dig in to verses 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, if you notice, Jesus gives one exhortation, and that exhortation is this, enter by the narrow gate. That's the main exhortation. He's calling his hearers to this one thing. Enter the narrow gate. And then he provides his reasoning or his argumentation for why we ought to enter the narrow gate. And what he does is he contrasts the nature of the narrow gate to that of the wide gate. Which implies... To not enter the narrow gate automatically means you've entered the wide gate. So if you're here this morning and you say, I refuse to enter the narrow gate, you are automatically saying, I'm entering the wide gate. There's no, I choose to enter neither. No, no, Jesus doesn't allow for that. To not choose the narrow gate is to choose the wide gate. There's no middle ground here with Jesus. See, there are things in life that often allow for a third option. Often there are two extremes and the middle road is actually the right road to walk. It's the balanced approach to these two extremes. And, and not always, but often it's the right path to choose. So, so for example, and this is just a silly illustration, one extreme, in my opinion, would be vegetarianism. The other extreme would be only ever eating meat. In my opinion, the right path to choose is a lot of meat and a little bit of veggies. <laughs> but there are situations in life 
where there is absolutely no middle ground whatsoever. There are two extremes, and one of the extremes is right, and the other is wrong. So, for example, many self-professing Christians today want to suggest that things like uh, gay marriage and homosexual behavior are in the category of things we can disagree over but still be united in Christ. They present it as a middle way. But I don't think there's a middle way on this issue. It is either sin and contrary to God's moral will and ought to be repented of like any other sin, or it isn't. There's no middle ground on this issue, for the scriptures honestly cannot be clearer on this issue. Let me be frank. It's one of the clearest things in the Bible. It's just as clear as the sin of adultery. Even gay and lesbian scholars agree that the Bible is vividly clear in its condemnation of homosexual behavior and practices in the same way it's vividly clear in its condemnation of all other forms of sexual immorality like adultery and fornication. So, for example, Bernadette Bruton, who has written one of the most important books on lesbianism in antiquity and is herself a lesbian, has criticized those who make these revisionist arguments regarding what the Bible says about homosexuality. That is, she's, she's criticizing those who try to make it sound like the Bible actually isn't all that clear on this issue. And so, uh, like one of the arguments that many people use today is, you know, Paul didn't know of mutual committed homosexual relationships, and if he had, he would have approved, which is just historically bogus. The ancient world had many committed same-sex relationships. So she says this, okay? This is, this is not a Christian woman. This is a, a scholar of lesbian studies who herself is a lesbian and who, con- is, who insists that the Bible is explicitly clear on this issue. This is what she says, in regards to Romans chapter 1, I believe that Paul used the word exchanged to indicate that people knew the natural sexual order of the universe and left it behind. I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism as the unnatural acts of people who had turned away from God. This is a lesbian author who's an expert in lesbian studies from the ancient world, and she's saying there's no wiggle room with the Apostle Paul on this issue, and in fact, with all of the Bible. So to believe what the Bible says on this issue is one extreme. And to disregard what the Bible says on this issue is another extreme. One is right, and the other is wrong. And that's what Jesus is presenting here with the narrow gate and the wide gate. There are only two options. And to not enter the narrow gate is to enter the wide gate. So placed before each of us are two gates and two ways. And Jesus exhorts us to enter the narrow gate and then he provides his reasoning. He contrasts the differences between the wide gate and wide way with the narrow gate and the narrow way. And his first argument for why we ought to enter the narrow gate is because the wide gate, though it appears appealing, 
Because there is a level of ease and comfort, it actually leads to your destruction. As he says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. Easy. The wide gate is the easy life. And that's appealing to us at times, is it not? We want the easy, comfortable, secure life. But Jesus says, enter the narrow gate because though the wide gate leads to the way that is easy, at the end of the path is actually destruction. So enter the narrow gate because though the wide gate may look appealing because of its ease, it leads to your death. It's like the man who happily enjoys going with the current of the river in his canoe, not realizing that just ahead is Niagara Falls. The second reason for why we ought to enter the narrow gate that Jesus sets before us is in verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. This gate... And this narrow way, at first glance, aren't appealing because it's hard. It hurts. It requires blood and sweat and grit. And though it may not seem appealing at first glance, it is the way that leads to life. It's only the fish that can swim against the current that live. It's always easier to go with the stream. But in this situation, going with the stream leads to death and going against the stream leads to life. This is the reason Jesus exhorts us to enter the narrow gate. Now, a few things we need to observe. Notice that in regards to the wide gate and the easy way, there are many who enter by it. And there are few who find the narrow gate and the hard way. And it seems like Jesus is suggesting that the kingdom of God is quite small and the kingdom of darkness quite large. That there are way more people that face destruction compared to those who find everlasting life. But we have to remember this. This is the only place in all the scriptures where the scale of the kingdom of God and those who participate in it are described as few. Both Old and New Testaments convey overall that those who enter the kingdom of, the kingdom of God are a part of a number that no one can fathom. God tells Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the sea. Uh, the Alfredos and I often get into arguments about which nation has the more beautiful beaches. I say the Philippines, they say Cuba. They have the right to be wrong. <laughs> but the beaches in Cuba are extremely long. And imagine trying to count every grain of sand. That's the comparison God makes with the number of those who will be in his kingdom. And that's why, as we saw last week in Revelation 7, John has this vision and he sees standing before the throne of God and of the Lamb a number of people that no one can count from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So though Jesus here uses this language of many and few, 
it would be wrong for us to conclude that the citizens of Christ's kingdom are a small number. No, no, no. Jesus, through his blood, redeemed, purchased, secured the salvation of a number of people that no man on earth could number. Now that being said, Jesus is making a point here. The flow of fallen man tends to enter the narrow gate, sorry, the the wide gate and the easy way. The flow of fallen man tends to enter the wide gate and walk the easy way. Second thing we need to understand is what actually is the wide gate and easy way? And what is the narrow gate and the hard way? What is it? See, often when we've heard this passage preached or even illustrated through art um, or whatnot, the wide gate and the easy way is often presented as the immoral, hedonistic lifestyle. It's often presented as the worldly person who's simply controlled by their passions and desires and lives primarily for self and self-gratification. Whereas the narrow gate and the hard way is often presented as the pious, zealous Christian who is devoted to good works and taking up their cross and following Jesus. It's the one committed to self-denial. And there are no doubt, there, and there is no doubt, uh, elements of truth to this, especially when you examine the totality of the scriptures. But I don't think that's what Jesus fully means here when he speaks of the narrow and the wide gate and the hard and the easy way. Remember, Jesus here is contrasting two different ways. And what has he been doing in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount? He's been contrasting two different kinds of righteousness. There is the righteousness of the Pharisees, and then there is the righteousness that Jesus says must exceed that of the Pharisees for one to enter the kingdom of God. And as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this righteousness is whole person righteousness, whereas where the internal and the external are in union with one another in contrast to the righteousness of the Pharisees that was merely external observance to God's commands. In other words, here's what I think Jesus is saying. The righteousness of the Pharisees is easy. The righteousness of the Pharisees is the wide gate and the easy way. It's man-made religion. Don't eat, don't drink, don't do all these things, don't commit adultery. It's easy. It's easy to make the outside look good. It's easy to not commit adultery or murder. It's easy to practice your righteousness before others so that you may be praised by them. It's easy to live by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's easy to hate your enemies and wish them harm. It's easy to be devoted to religious practices while your heart is harder than stone. And Jesus says here, this easy righteousness is what leads to death 
and destruction. Whereas the narrow gate and the hard way is this whole person righteousness that leads to true life, flourishing, everlasting life. But this whole person righteousness is hard because it requires intense self-examination and self-mortification. It requires one to, to not just be concerned about external observance to God's law, but rather is concerned about the state of one's heart before God. You see, it's easy to not murder, but it's hard to not be angry with a brother or sister. It's easy to not commit adultery, but it's hard waging war against lustful intent. It's easy to take another man's eye, but it's hard to not resist an evil person. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's easy to hate your enemies and wish them harm. And there is nothing harder than to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. It's easy to give to the poor when we know we'll be recognized and praised for it by others. It's hard when we know that only God will see. It's easy to worry and be anxious about all our worldly needs, but it's hard to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness while trusting that God will care for our every need. It's easy to judge others and see the speck in another man's eye, but it's extremely hard for us to deal with the giant plank of wood in our own eyes. And the question for each of us who claim to be disciples of Jesus is this. Which gate and which way better describes you? And if it's the wide gate and the easy way, then choose this day by the mercy of God and the help of the Holy Spirit to enter the narrow gate and walk the hard way. The way of whole person righteousness. Now some of you may be thinking, Peter, this sounds a lot like salvation by works. I mean, you seem to be implying, and Jesus does too, that it's only those who live according to this whole person righteousness that will enter the kingdom of heaven. I am. I am implying that it's only those who live according to this whole person righteousness that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But that is still different than salvation by works. That is not what I'm implying, nor is Jesus. Let me say a few things to clarify this. For one, we need to be reminded of some scripture, like when James says, faith without works is dead. Or in the following image that Jesus provides here, he says, we will recognize them by their what? Their faith? Their fruits. Their fruits. Remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount isn't articulating how one is made right with God. Rather, he's articulating what true discipleship looks like and what the virtuous life looks like that will bring flourishing both in this life and the next. But let me illustrate to you what true saving faith is so that we can approach the Sermon on the Mount, I think, rightly. 
Let's say you're in a small rowboat and you're trying to get to land, but you can't see the land. But you believe that if you keep going the way that you're going, you will reach land. Now, how do you actually know that you really believe that? Like, how do you actually know that you really believe that if you keep going the way you're going, you will reach land? How do you know? You row. You row. If you really believe that there's land ahead of you, you're going to row. In other words, your believing, your faith leads to action. If you don't row, you don't actually believe there's land ahead of you. You might say you believe it, but your actions show that you actually don't believe it. In the same way, how do you know if you have true saving faith? You desire and strive to become a disciple of Jesus Christ that truly reflects the whole person righteousness articulated in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, if you don't desire to become the kind of disciple that Jesus describes here, at best, you're in unrepentance and you need to repent. At worst, you're probably not a disciple of Jesus. And so before each of us are two gates, two ways, one easy, the other hard. One leads to destruction, the other leads to life, abundant life. Jesus exhorts us to enter the narrow gate and walk the hard way. And the question I leave you with is this. Will you simply hear Jesus' words this morning? Or will you hear his words and do as he has said? Enter the narrow gate. Walk the hard way. Let's pray. Father, As disciples of Jesus, we truly do want to live for him. But we know that in and of ourselves, in our own strength, we are incapable of following and being faithful to Jesus. And so, Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would strengthen and empower us, overwhelm us with grace that would fuel us to follow hard after Jesus to enter the narrow gate and walk the hard way, for it is that way that leads to everlasting life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.